Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? Tearing myself away from the beach to talk about movies with my friends. Not tearing myself away from the beach, but happy to be talking about movies with friends. Alyssa, I'm glad we could rescue you from the beach where the sand and the sharks are. Nobody likes those things. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, as China tightens its grip on Hong Kong, movie studios continue to back away from anything that might offend Xi Jinping and his cronies in the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, marginal projects like documentaries are already beginning to feel the pinch. The Hollywood Reporter reported that a documentary based on the book Feeding the Dragon about the increased influence of China over the film industry and sports in America by a former film executive named Chris Fenton is having trouble lining up major studio backing despite super producer Alex Gibney's attachment to the project. Uh, sources said they couldn't even get a meeting with Netflix or HBO, somewhat surprising since both networks had recently made documentaries critical of China. Meanwhile, American action movies continue to be in a precarious position in the vaunted Chinese market. Despite John Cena's grotesque apology for daring to suggest Taiwan is its own nation, and spoiler, Taiwan is its own nation, F9 plummeted at the Chinese box office between its first and second weekend, tumbling 85%. While Universal was undoubtedly happy to see the film grow $70 million this weekend domestically, and, and it's totaling near $400 million worldwide, a, a best for the pandemic, which tells you just how terrible things are, um, it, that's still, it, it still made a relatively soft $200 million or so in China. And that makes it hard for the series to get to the lofty $1 billion box office needed to justify the um, enormous budget of these movies. I remain split on the ultimate outcome of China's crackdown here. You know, on the one hand, it's obviously bad that China's influence is leading uh, to the stifling of documentaries critical of China. Nobody thinks that's a good thing. On the other, maybe China's repeated leaning on Hollywood's big budget fare with crash landings for movies like Mulan and Raya the Last Dragon and softer but still bad totals for movies like F9 uh, means that Hollywood will see the negatives of the Chinese market outweigh the positives, scale back their budgets a bit, and begin to refocus on Western audiences. Peter, are American studios ready to reclaim their spot as America's conscience by rejecting Chinese demands, uh, or should we get ready for more kowtowing? America's conscience. <laughs> That's funny. They're not America's conscience, man. They're just a bunch of companies trying to extract money from people by entertaining them. They make entertainment. You give them their money. That's that's the deal. That's the whole system. And what they want to do is extract as much money from as many people as possible. And that means that at a certain point, they have maxed out the domestic audience, the North American audience, and... What's a big audience, developing audience that is that is ready to see Hollywood productions? That means China. So I think that that the big studios are going to be uh, are are going to be looking for ways to stay in the good graces of the Chinese Communist Party, which controls film um, distribution in China, uh, for as long as that remains a viable market. And um, and I, I just think that if you if you're going to pin your hopes on big movie studios being America's conscience, come on, Sonny, come on, well, I, I, that's it's I, just joking, not going to happen. Now, now they might end up 
they might end up somewhat reformulating their budgets and their strategies if it looks like China is just going to be a market that they can't crack anymore or it's just going to be too difficult, right? If if for whatever reason, whether it is censorship, uh, that you know, direct censorship, or whether it's the, just that Chinese audiences start um, wanting movies made by Chinese studios and, you know, sort of uh, made in country, um, if that market kind of dries up for them and they feel like they can't they're not going to be successful there, then they might end up recalibrating. But it's not going to be because they want to reclaim the mantle of America's conscience because they never had that. Because that's oh, not they what they like do. Say, they like to pretend that they do, though, uh, Peter. And uh, Alyssa, I, I use that I use that phrasing kind of tongue in cheek, you know, uh, the idea of America's conscience uh, being Hollywood. But this is something you have written about, which is that Hollywood does kind of see itself as a force for progress, a force for kind of the liberal ideals of, you know, blah, 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 inclusion, tolerance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, and, and I, I, I don't see how blah, they can blah, reconcile. Blah, blah, inclusion, tolerance, et cetera. Yeah, well, I think that's, I, that's actually it, what they stand for. I'm treating it, it. I'm treating it as seriously as Hollywood does, frankly. Uh, and, 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 and Alyssa, I, I, I bring this up and I, again, I use the, the phrase kind of tongue in cheek here, but you've written about this before that Hollywood, you know, kind of sees itself as this shining beacon of, you know, freedom, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I don't see how they can reconcile that with what's happening in the Chinese market and with the Chinese government. No, absolutely not. And look, I increasingly see myself as a columnist covering the, you know, corporate ass covering beat to a certain extent, um, you know, whether that's happening in publishing, um, but especially in Hollywood. And I think that, you know, I, I would phrase this a slightly different way. I think the entertainment industry has um, tried to cast itself as not merely sort of profitable and entertaining, but socially significant. And one of the ways it does that is by positioning itself as a set of institutions that export American values abroad. There is this idea that because American entertainment is the best in the world, people will seek it out just because it's excellent at entertaining and they will be exposed to American values and ideas in the process. But you cannot simultaneously make that claim domestically and bow to a dictatorial foreign government abroad. And I think it's worthwhile to be clear that this is not the only country where this happens. I mean, you know, Netflix, which does not particularly operate in China, has, um, you know, censored uh, episodes of um, Hassan Minhaj's show at the behest of the Saudi government. Um, you know, I think the Indian government, especially under Narendra Modi, has taken a more authoritarian term and um, it has become sort of more difficult for studios to maneuver freely there. Um, and, you know, some of what the entertainment industry is dealing with is a worldwide resurgence of authoritarianism and nationalism. And certainly what's happening in China is not merely authoritarian, but it's also nationalist. This is, you know, China has its own film industry that is trying to stand up to produce blockbusters that will be able to compete with American um, movies overseas. But yeah, you you cannot make a sort of domestic marketing claim about your own social significance when you are routinely undermining that claim in the very public eye for access to a market that ultimately may punish you anyway because it doesn't want you to succeed, right? I mean, to a certain extent, China has carried out like kind of a hedging action with regard to 
American movies. It has an overall quota on the number of American movies that will screen on Chinese domestic in Chinese domestic theaters. Um, to get access to one of those slots, your movie has to pass, you know, China's official film censorship board. Um, but to you know, it's easy for Hollywood to say, okay, we're going to compete for those slots. But really, what the Chinese government and Chinese movie industry have been doing is kind of buying time for their own blockbuster production to get up to speed. So that the U.S. entertainment industry has just morally debased itself over and over again. And again, not just Hollywood. You know, the NBA did this too in a totally disgraceful way. Um, uh, and so that the entertainment industry has totally debased itself to an authoritarian government for, you know... A for access to a market that and has done so in a way that was basically collaborating with an authoritarian government's holding action as it built up its own industry is not just sort of morally suicidal, but it is it has been, I think, ultimately fairly short-sighted from a business perspective. Because the industry has gotten addicted to a business model that China wants to destroy, right? You know, that's yeah. If you need the Chinese market to hit a billion dollars and all of your movies are budgeted such that you need to make a billion dollars on all of these blockbusters, not just for them to be viable, but to support the rest of your less profitable slate. And the Chinese government has been sort of stringing you along with the intent of ultimately shutting you out. Like that, <laughs> that is not something that is going to be viable in the long term for Hollywood, um, either morally or economically. So and this is why do we actually and, and think that China wants to destroy this business model? Because this is yes. this is something that I'm it's sort of the stated goal. It's the stated goal of the Chinese film industry is to destroy Hollywood's uh, dominance in China uh, and to replace it with a Chinese film business. So I, mean, I, that, I, I know that they want to grow their own um, their their own sort of uh, film production industry and that they want to produce blockbusters and that they would like them even to have some sort of, you know, uh, global influence and reach. Um, like, I'm not disputing any of that. At the same time, actually, I, I have always felt like part of what the Chinese government is is attempting to do here is to take one of the most visible and uh, sort of the, uh, the Hollywood is it may not be America's conscience. It is in some ways um, a, a, a sort of private diplomat for America, right? It's how we show ourselves to the world in, in a lot of ways. And I've always felt that like a, a big part of what China is trying to do here is to take that symbol of American values or whatever, at least you know, that's how it's perceived globally and say, look, we can control it. We yeah. can we can make it bend to our will. And so in some ways, it's not just that they want to destroy it and build their own thing, what I think they want to do is sort of have it bow to the Chinese Communist Party, right? Yeah, and then to say, look, that. we... Yeah, and, and yes, they've already I, done they that. have and, done and that to are, some extent, and, I'm saying and they're trying to do that, it more and more. And they're moving beyond that. You see, they've already... Done, see, that's that's goal number one, Peter. Goal number one is uh, make make Hollywood a slash Neil America's Tazad. conscience. Neil Tazad, a.k.a. Winnie the Pooh, Xi Jinping. Uh, and, then, and then step number two is destroy that industry and replace it with a Chinese equivalent that projects its own uh, diplomatic force beyond its borders. Now, the, the problem is Chinese movies aren't good. Chinese movies are bad, um, and nobody wants to see them outside of China. That's just that is just like the uh, objective truth. They they don't they don't travel overseas at all. Um, whether or not that matters is is a is a kind of secondary question because. 
just simply replacing the Chinese uh, market's you know use of foreign films with use with domestic films uh, essentially serves the goal of destroying Hollywood as it is currently constituted, um, which is why, I, again, I'm kind of torn on this. I think it's actually good for the Hollywood to suffer a massive market failure in China. I want Hollywood to realize that they, they have been making movies for 14-year-olds in China and that that is a bad business model and that they should get back to making movies for 38-year-olds uh, in, in Dallas, Texas. That's what, that's what they should be doing. Um, I think one thing that we haven't talked about that's worth discussing here is not just what happens to Hollywood, but what happens to Hong Kong's own domestic film industry, which is incredibly rich and creative um, and has had an enormous influence on American movie making. And yes, it is true that, you know, American movie making is sort of affected downstream by what the Chinese government wants. But Filmmakers who are still living and working in Hong Kong and making movies for that domestic audience who have just an astonishing body of work are likely to suffer sort of much more severe direct repression. Um, and, you know, this may be good for America in terms of forcing Hollywood to recalibrate, but I worry a lot about the impact on Hong Kong filmmakers. Um, I hope folks are able to stay safe as well as productive. Um, but what, I, what I'm hearing here... Question. What I'm hearing here is freedom visas for Hong Kong filmmakers to come to America and make films in America where they can be free and not have to worry about communist repression. You know, we can we can follow the Chloe Zhao model. We might get some great movies about America as well as Hong Kong out of it. I mean, not just for the filmmakers, right? We should be letting Chinese uh, dissidents from Hong Kong um, and from all over into the country. Um, I think that's a good point, Alyssa. I think it's notable here that Sonny's, like, this, the conflict in your heart is about, really, it's about what's going to own film Twitter the most here. <laughs> and, and that's really what you ultimately care about and well i i feel like film twitter is is pretty anti-china for the most part uh you know they don't they won't come out and say it but i i think in their hearts they know what's right uh you know we'll we'll see uh so what do we think here is it a uh is it a controversy or a non-troversy that american film studios fear china so much that they avoid anti-chinese government documentaries. And I want to be clear here, anti-Chinese government, yeah. not anti-China the people. This is always a thing that, you know, everyone gets very touchy about. But I think there's the we should we should clarify that these are documentaries that are about the ills of the Chinese government, not the Chinese people. Uh, Alyssa. Hugely controversial. Peter. Quite controversial, I would say, though, that uh, I, I think it is in some ways at least a little bit of a mistake to treat the studios as the primary actors here. The problem is the Chinese government much more than the choices that Hollywood studios make. Uh, it's usually controversial, and it's controversial because studios are, in fact, giant cowards when it comes to the Chinese government. I mean, the Chinese government can say whatever it wants, but the studios don't have to bend to the will of the Chinese government. Uh, but they do because they're cowards. They want the money. Uh, if you enjoy the show and who doesn't, it's great. Uh, Chinese government excluded, probably not big fans. Uh, <laughs> make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we will have a bonus members only episode about car movies. Uh, if you don't want to watch F9 and why would you, it's a terrible movie. Uh, watch one of these car movies instead. And now on to the main event, F9, the fast saga movie that, as I mentioned just now, literally moments ago, is not very good. Um, it's not very good because it is bereft 
of the two things that have revitalized the Fast and the Furious franchise, Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Jason Statham, two actors with legitimate star presence. Uh, those two have departed for their own spinoff series, Hobbs and Shaw, and as silly as Hobbs and Shaw was, I'd rather spend two plus hours with those guys than anybody in this movie. Um, they're just more magnetic. Uh, it's not very good because there are weirdly two different movies mashed together here. There is a self-serious slog that repeatedly invokes the word family as if it's a theme just in and of itself, family, and flashes crucifixes like talismans. Um, then th this movie stars Vin, Vin Diesel and Michelle Rodriguez, uh, who are trying to save the world from a thing that is round and it glows green and it takes over computers or something. I don't know. It's a MacGuffin. doesn't really matter. Uh, the other is an intermittently amusing buddy comedy starring Tyrese Gibson and Ludacris, uh, musing about how they might actually be immortal beings unable to die. I would have much rather just had the whole movie be that. That would have been much better. Uh, but it's it's also not very good because it's structured kind of like a soap opera, a very bad soap opera, a terrible soap opera uh, with flashbacks and retcons designed to resurrect characters who were killed and create characters who never existed but have influenced everything that we know about these people. Uh, the resurrected Han, a fan favorite, unceremoniously disposed of in an epilogue to a previous film, returns to much applause. Uh, and the new character is played by John Cena, a veritable black hole of charisma who serves as a decent reminder why Dwayne Johnson is the only wrestler to have successfully made the jump from squared circle to the widescreen. Um, it's not very good because it's filled with weirdly circular plot holes. Like, for instance, there's this one moment where a stronghold that they're hanging out in is invaded by bad guys and the good guys flee. And then uh, two minutes later, they just kind of come back and they, they hang out there some more because I guess it doesn't matter. Um, or or there's, uh, there's a plane crash in a foreign country that isn't being guarded by anyone, but there are rotating circular bands of guards who are coming by every, I don't know, 10 minutes or so for some That's reason. That's how you um, guard plane I'm not, crashes, Sonny. I'm not even, even going to get started on the walking, talking deus ex machina that is Kurt Russell's Mr. Nobody, who, again, just kind of disappears from that plane crash. He's on it, and then he's gone, and nobody nobody really says, like, wait, should we try and find Mr. Nobody, who has, like, kind of put all of this together? I don't know. Uh, and finally, finally, it's not very good because the action sequences are frankly, kind of boring. Um, if there's one thing that you have to do in a movie like this, it's keep me from being bored while all the explosions and all the car crashes are happening. And this fails at that. Look, I know you two like this movie, and I find your acceptance of all of this totally baffling. Um, Alyssa, are you telling me you did not just start laughing when Vin Diesel performed a Dwayne Johnson-style feat of strength, pulling the walkway and the concrete down on top of his enemies like a bloated, lumpy Samson? Obviously, but that's the point, right? I mean, the Fast and Furious movies are delightful and have become a world-conquering phenomenon in part by getting people of all races, you know, genders, uh, like everything to just turn off their brains and have a good time. They are devoted to pure sort of dopamine hit followed by dopamine hit followed by dopamine hit. And your, I mean, your imperviousness to fun is just one of the saddest things about you. And I feel sorry for you that you can't enjoy this movie. But, you know, as someone who, look, I love serious talky you know, socially significant indie movies, but I also periodically just need to turn off my brain, eat a lot of junior mints, um, and watch some stuff that is completely ridiculous. And that is what these movies give me, right? Like they give me ludicrous in space. Um, they give me, you know, but they also give me the only action movie I can think of where two working moms 
sit down over a meal and talk about like their work-life balance and how they miss the adrenaline of their careers relative to the more sedate pleasures of raising their families. Um, you know, the, 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 you know, superhero movies can open all the portals to alternate dimensions they want and send all of the space monsters they want through them. But if you could do anything, if physics do not in fact actually apply, isn't it way more fun to essentially slingshot a car across a cliff or use a giant magnet to just screw with everybody around you? Like these movies have a sense, they are, their lack of self-seriousness um, gives everyone in the audience permission to just care a little bit less and, you know, enjoy the moments as they pass. And that is what I love about them. They like, I would never make a claim that the fast saga is like a serious set of movies or even necessarily that they're, that they're terribly good, but they are just incredibly enjoyable. Um, and I don't always want to follow incredibly complicated plot continuity. I don't always want to be tied up in a mythology that actually matters. Sometimes you just want to drink a Corona while a dad figure, you know, grills a bunch of stuff in somebody's backyard and feel like there is a possible fusion between mid-century values and modern multicultural ones. And the franchise does that incredibly well. See, here's, I want to push back slightly on this idea that it's not self-serious because it, 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 it does take itself very seriously. Oh, yeah. it, it, has stumbled on, it has stumbled onto this ridiculous idea that it is about family, okay, right? The, sure. the series, the series in, in, in like the third or fourth episode, I think it was maybe the fourth or fifth one. Yeah. At some point, it's like, wait, we have a theme now. It's family. Sure. We're, we're about, it's a family. We're about family. And I, But they don't ever actually develop this theme. They just say family over and over again. But, and it's not, there's nothing interesting about it. So specifically what I would say, um, they're not so serious in the sense that they're not making a claim to larger social significance, right? I mean, both the Marvel and the DC movies, um, the Marvel movies arguably less successfully than the DC movies. Um try to be about something bigger than grown people in Lycra beating the heck out of each other, right? I mean, you have, you know, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, that's ostensibly sort of about America's surveillance state. You have the Falcon and the Winter Soldier that is, you know, tries to be about race in America, not terribly successfully because the, you know, Marvel doesn't actually have the guts to say anything serious, you know, searing about um, systemic racism in America. Um, but what, part of what the Fast and Furious saga has glommed onto is that, you know, for most people who are not actually represented by film Twitter, the, you know, the most important decisions in life are actually taking place at the level of family, right? Like, you know, most people are not as online or as politically engaged as we are. And they're, you know, when they're sitting down to make a decision about something important in their life, it's not about, you know, how their decision is going to play out on Twitter. It's, you know, what is the thing that's going to work best for me and my spouse and my kids? And um, the dilemmas that the Fast and Furious characters have are obviously incredibly outsized, but they do sort of recognize the unit and the level at which most people are sort of most emotionally and logistically engaged. And yeah, I agree with you. Like the sort of family catchphrase is legitimately hilarious and often deployed kind of poorly. But at the same time, the scene that I mentioned where Mia and Letty sit down, you know, at a street market in Tokyo and have some ramen and, you know, talk about that sort of balance between 
you know, the adrenaline of working as a sort of high-end private mercenary who drives cars fast and preserving a stable environment for their kids. Like, I've literally never seen anything like that in an action movie. Yeah, the, the organizational uh, financing issues are really sort of obscure here. It's not, yes. I couldn't quite explain it. But I have never seen anything like that in an action movie. And, you know, like, it's not a political discussion, right? Like, they're not saying, like, wouldn't it be nice to have more, like, family, you know, paid leave or more flexibility in our jobs? Um, It's just two women having the sort of conversation that action movies generally treat as irrelevant, but that actually are what the women in the audience are thinking about a lot of the time, those of us have kids anyway. Um, and I wouldn't say that the movie, you know, the sort of portentousness with, with which Vin Diesel talks about family is not played out in a series of sophisticated plots, but it does come across in those little moments where the characters are feeling sort of push and pull about who they have loyalty to um, and sort of what's the most you know, what's the highest level of obligation that you can have? Um, I don't think that it's always well done, but I think that there is something smart about not playing to, you know, a the larger trend in movie making, which is pretending that everything has some larger political or social significance. It's actually meeting the audience where it's at emotionally uh, rather than playing for sort of a, you know, playing for importance that it, can't legitimately claim sure uh i understand i understand all that and i appreciate all that it's i it's fair enough uh peter did you find it weird that they kept mentioning paul walker's character brian uh who paul walker of course died tragically in a a, i think a street racing uh it wasn't street racing Uh, but it was in a fast car it was in a fast car going very fast um uh I, I found it I found it very distracting that they kept mentioning Brian and the the closing shot of the film spoilers is his car pulling up and like I thought it was weird I thought I'm sorry I thought it was weird was that was that not weird to anyone else I didn't think it was weird at all I found it tremendously affecting um, in a way that oh, I was not oh that I was not God. at all prepared for um, yeah I know sap. sorry I'm a I'm a softie and you I, are if a only if only we'd had CGI Paul Walker set against some Western sunsets in a Chloe Zhao film I just I would have been in heaven no I thought. This is a this movie franchise is a is a fantasy, right? It is uh, Justin Lin when he came on um, with a third film, he took this sort of lowly kind of um, kind of basic street racing franchise, the first film of which was basically just a remake, beat by beat, of Point Break, except with street racing instead of surfing. Uh, and it, the main star had just like had had ditched the franchise and had, had gone away and he rebuilt it from the ground up to be a global superhero heist action franchise. Um, and part of what he did was he turned it into a, a sort of superhero fantasy film. And the other thing that he did was he made it really kind of appealingly earnest. And I think I find... I, I, it's, it's so pure in the way that it, uh, in the way that it conducts itself. It's so not nihilistic, right? It's a little bit cynical just in the sense that all $200 million blockbuster movies are are in some sense cynical, right? There's, there's plays to China there, which is a big market for these films, right? There's a whole bunch of stuff that is done carefully and on purpose to get 
audiences into theaters and to sort of appeal to the core demographic, you know, the, the, to core viewers who, who love these films. But it's not, it's not nasty in any way. Um, even though these are big, you know, action-driven films, a lot of shooting and car crashes and all that stuff, these films are just are 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 deeply decent um and and kind of nice and pleasant. And I like that niceness, right? There's um there's a kind of weird democratic universality to the series that is just that is just really appealing. And it's particularly appealing uh, right now, coming back to the theaters, you know, this is this is the biggest of the blockbusters that I have seen in a theater uh, since uh, movie theaters reopened, uh, uh, even more so than than A Quiet Place Part Two. Um, you know, you you mentioned the the family theme, um, and I, I guess what I kind of like about it is is that it's they understand how shallow a theme it is, and yet they play it in this way that is so thunderously operatic. And again, it's it's knowing and it's self-aware and in, in a way that's sort of enjoyable. And so I, the reason I like this franchise is that it's incredibly stupid, but it's also really smart about the way yeah. that it's stupid and it's super focused on delivering fun in a way that is just pleasurable and and a and like easy to and goes down easy in it you know in a two or two and a half hour format i i was not bored at all um i in fact thought the movie would be a little bit longer and and felt like it was it was if anything about 10 minutes too short and i could have used i could have used a little bit more um uh, especially at the end where it almost felt like they cut some of the action scenes a little bit short in order to focus on some of the emotional beats yeah, I, mean, I think we could have definitely used 10 more minutes of John Cena ziplining uh, <laughs> through Edinburgh. Yeah. Just like, I was like, how how many things can he zipline on here? He's there are so out. many things this, to zipline. This, if you, study, if you had ziplining. a zipline rocket launcher, wouldn't you use it to get everywhere? Was, I know were, I would. It reminds me of, it reminds me of either the fifth or sixth one where they're on that runway that's like 37 miles long if the it was whole, an actual yeah, the runway whole third act is on a run that, is on a runway and uh <laughs> i think it was vulture did a calculation of how many yeah. miles it must be for them to be like stay on the runway this entire time and it was like 30 miles or something it was yeah. it was just completely absurd and this franchise knows how absurd it is and there's a whole bunch of just very open it's not even winking nods right there's just they're just putting a bell on you know hanging a bell on it like they're they're saying hey this franchise is about being absurd that's what that whole subplot about whether they're gonna uh whether the uh all of these drivers uh in this clandestine whatever i don't even know what to call them what do they do for a living what does what do they do I don't know what they are, but th that's what the whole thing about are we invincible or are we just lucky is about is the fact that it's just completely silly that they have survived mostly unscathed, except for the times when sometimes people die, but then they come back from the dead because these are comic book movies and they're soap operas. And I, I like the blend of those things. And I just think it, that tonally it works really well. And the action scenes are actually pretty well, uh, are, are pretty well choreographed. When Peter and I um, were driving home from seeing this, one of the things we were talking about is the way that the film's basic geniality is also really commercially savvy. And um, that, you know, this is a movie where um, people with differences, you know, leaving aside like whether you're on the side of like Cypher and Etienne and any of the sort of ludicrous antagonists, people can be on different sides, can be different people. And there's often this sort of like ribbing 
nature to the overall script. So this is a movie that can literally have a line about how Brooklyn hipsters will eat everything, will eat anything and they have bad taste. That also has all of the meta stuff between Roman and Tej about are we superheroes that is specifically designed to appeal to like the Peters and the Mies of the world who recognize these as sort of absurd backdoor superhero movies. It, you know, it has the working moms and these strong dads. It has, you know, um, it has like the hot chicks at random parties and, you know, Michelle Rodriguez, who is like, has pretty good sexual chemistry with Vin Diesel, but herself is gay um, and is pretty butch and who the movie doesn't try to dress up too much and who the franchise doesn't try to dress up too much. Um, You know, it has a populist streak in the sense that, you know, you have this line where the villain uh, you know, says, you know, spoiled rich pricks actually run the world. And then the movie proves that they don't, you know, there are like, there are things that are like sending out computer viruses that can take over the whole world or can like kill it. Everybody is bad, but pretty much everyone else is welcome to a seat at the table as long as they approach the whole proceedings with, you know, sort of openness and good naturedness. And I think, you know, both characters within the films and audiences in the theaters just feel really welcomed by them um, in a way that is both sort of just totally enjoyable and very commercially smart. The family theme is also sort of plays in there in that, sure, they've been putting together an ad hoc family inside the franchise, but part of what they're sort of signaling is, hey, viewers, fans who have now been watching these movies for 20 years, you are part of our family too. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned uh, uh, Hot Women at Parties, Alyssa, yeah. and I want to, I want to, I want to, uh, one thing that jumped out at me in this movie is how bereft it is of hot women in general compared to some of the previous entries in the, in the franchise. If you go back and watch the first one, for yeah. instance, um, it is just, it's basically a, a music video yeah. Uh, in in large stretches where it's like very scantily clad women like kind of grinding on cars and bending over so you can see you know lo- lots of their body and and that that has kind of continued pretty steadily even up to F8 uh, which starts with I believe a race in Cuba uh, that has many many of these same attributes and this movie is 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 extremely, uh, limited on that front. There's there's one street race where there's a a woman who is dressed in like camo gear, fatigues almost. That is almost like she, I mean she might as well be wearing a burqa compared to the first one. And the only party where there actually are lots of hot women, it was put on by the villain. It's the villain ha- is the one who is objectifying these women. And I wonder if it is if it says something about the kind of state of Hollywood and how they look at. Uh, how uh, how how the treatment and depiction of women in general uh, has changed in the last twenty years? I mean, the series has been going on for two decades now. Uh, I, I I think I feel like there's I feel like you can draw an almost straight line to from the first one to this one about the depiction of women in film, right? Or am I or am I overreading this, Alyssa? Um, I mean, I think that um. I don't know how intentional it is, but certainly I think the fact that, um, you know, characters like Letty, like Mia, like um, Ramsey, the hacker played by Natalie Emanuel, you know, there is just more of space for women to kind of contribute in different ways in the franchise, in ways that are not just decoration. And I think that, you know, one of the things they noticed over time was that people enjoyed sort of the relationship and the dynamic between women. Um, 
But I also think there, you know, the franchise has a lot of, you know, it gives, the franchise has always given Michelle Rodriguez a lot to do in terms of fight sequences. Um, You know, you have her doing, you know, fight scene with Gina Carano. You have that. It's a really super fun uh, fight scene with her and Ronda Rousey in Furious 7, uh, which is, you know, it sort of gets at what you're saying, Sunny, because it, you know, that's a scene that has Letty, you know, all sort of dressed up to infiltrate this party in a way that she doesn't feel super comfortable doing. And then, you know, ends up going one-on-one with Rousey's character, who similarly is like in, you know, a in like a gold bandage dress or hair very done. And the two of them get to sort of literally like bust out of those dresses and beat the hell out of each other and kind of cast the, you know, super femme stereotyping aside. Um, And I don't know that this would have happened in a franchise that didn't have Rodriguez in that role, right? Because she, I mean, has a long and successful career you know, as a viable action star, she's, you know, like, she looks like she could do well in a fight. And she has that, you know, the franchise has not tried to, other than like making Letty straight, obviously, has not tried to, it has made use of um, some of Rodriguez's like slightly butcher, you know, presentation and styling instead of trying to erase it. And I think that has wedged open a lot of space in the franchise for women to do a range of things. And not just, I mean, you know, it's worth noting that it's not just young women either. There's this sort of recurring role for um, Helen Mirren, who clearly enjoys getting to play like a British criminal badass. Um, And, you know, she's not doing fight scenes, but there's room for like older women to have fun in these as well. Um, you know, the, like, I think it's actually kind of nice that, you know, Nathalie Emanuel, who I believe is Black and British, like, doesn't have to be the fighter. She is, you know, the Black woman in the franchise who gets to be, like, sort of the fragile nerd who doesn't know how to drive. Um, and the, you know, this is a movie, this is a movie but franchise. then she gets to drive the magnet van. Yes. And she gets to learn to drive on an absurd, like, electromagnetic magnet van. Um <laughs> But, you know, right. it's a movie that is both diverse. Sonny, you're and, just jealous. And without, like, underlining it and trying to get credit for it and make a thing of it, actually opens up space for um, people to play roles that are sort of counter to their ethnic stereotypes, right? I mean, Ludacris gets to play a tech nerd. Um, Tyrese, who's, like, you know, incredibly handsome and physically fit, gets to play this sort of, like, anxious, manic, candy-eating character. You know, Vin Diesel gets to play the family patriarch. The, you know, slightly butch Mia is the matriarch. Uh, Letty is the matriarch. You know, Mia is hyper-feminine, um, but you can still, like, drop her in some sort of absurd armored vehicle and have her shoot a bunch of people. Um, it's just a... And I think that's part of the sort of welcoming vibe, right? Like, you can turn into tune into a diverse movie with a lot of female characters and not feel like everyone is going to be playing sort of a pre-scripted role. All right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on F9, the fast saga, Alyssa. Thumbs up extremely quickly. Peter. Thumbs up, but it maybe uh, would have been even better with some singing and dancing. Uh, Thumbs down. Uh, Though I do hope that the subplot about Tyrese uh, and Ludacris being immortal leads to the inevitable conclusion of this. There's only two movies left, which is F11. You know what that means? F11 
fast and furious in heaven. And then, and then they be, they, they overthrow God and they take over his kingdom and Vin Diesel becomes family to everyone. If that happens, I will retract all of my complaints about this series uh, that I have ever made. Vin Diesel um, does uh, have the voice for it. <laughs> that is it for today's show. Uh, if you loved it, make sure to check out our members only bonus episode on the best movies uh, about cars and make sure to tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we will die. Uh, if you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Mm-hmm.